Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. All right. Well, good morning. And uh, yeah, oh, look at y'all all like talking back and stuff. That's great. Uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning, Romans chapter 2. I want to start off uh, this morning by saying thank you. Uh, thank you to our Columbia staff, to the core team, uh, to Pastor Jacob Scrimshire, uh, who was here last week kind of covering some of the bases, and to you guys uh, for letting me uh, be out last week. I, I have a, I think I've told you all this a couple times, I get to, uh, last, last, year, last week is a, an annual event that I get to to uh, attend with a group of pastor friends of mine, guys that I've known, uh, one of them for uh, over 30 years. I know you're like, you're not even 30 years old. My gosh, yeah, it's <laughs> blessings. Um, but, uh, but just we get to sit around and hang out and tell stories that we've told each other before. There was a point last week when uh, multiple times dur- over the, the days that we were there, uh, one, of, one of us would say, I, I don't know if I've told you this story before, and, and we're like, stop. Listen, we've all heard all the stories. Like, yes, you've told us this story before, so, but it's fine. Like, we're old, and we tell the stories again, and we laugh, and we act like we've never heard them before. So uh, it, was, it was fun. It was a great time. So uh, thank you for that. It was relaxing and just kind of uh, excited. It made me excited to be back here with you guys as we just share stories about what life is like and the the ministries that God has put us in and those kind of things. So uh, speaking of last week is we started a new series called Masterclass where we're working through the book of Romans. Uh, Last year during the summer, we worked through the book of Mark and we got feedback on that series as we worked through the the gospel of Mark uh, about how much you enjoyed that, just kind of working book by book or chapter by chapter through uh, a book of the Bible. And, and that's a lot of what we do, but just really kind of honing in on, on one book for that long period of time. And, and, and so we decided we we're going to do that this year and, and, and decided we're going to jump in Romans and this, this letter that Paul writes to the Roman church. And uh, I hope that maybe some of you, if not all of you, have gotten your masterclass journal. Uh, we, these are uh, on sale. They're $10. And I know you're like, we're supposed to give away things at church. We're like, yes, but not things that are this nice. And so we, we, want, uh, <laughs> like, we want you to grab one of these. And, and you can also download it uh, on the, off the website if you want uh, just the material and the uh, daily step stuff. Uh, but it's a great, um, a, a great resource for us to journal and, and just kind of work through the scriptures together. The, the daily steps is in there. There's also the, the scripture memory verse challenge that's a, as a part of that. And I don't know, anybody want to rattle off the memory verse from last week? Anybody? Romans 1, 16? Anybody? No, nobody's ready for that, right? For, so, but I wrote it down, so I don't have to rattle it off like from memory. Uh, but it, Romans 1, 16, 1 verse 16, for, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God 
for salvation for any, everyone who believes, right? First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so over the next several weeks, we've got this, this week, you can see it on your worship guide as the, the verse for the week. It's um, Romans 2, 7 and 8 as uh, the, the passage that we'll be memorizing as a, as a body together. So reading scripture together, studying together, uh, memorizing scripture together, opening up God's word together uh, here on Sunday mornings. What, a, what an awesome time we have over the next several weeks as we study through uh, the book of Romans. I'm really excited about it. So this morning, uh, like I said, we're going to get into Romans chapter 2. And before we get there, just real quick, I want to kind of give us a recap, a little bit of what the book of Romans or where we've been so far. And I know if you were here last week, Pastor Jeff mentioned um, that uh, Augustine, St. Augustine was uh, some of the, the places uh, that in this passage, in, in the book of Romans, specifically uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, as a significant point uh, of, of his, or actually not for him, but the, for Martin Luther, that was a, a breakthrough point. But for Augustine, for Martin Luther, all these individuals that, that throughout history, that Romans has been a significant part of their, of their story in coming to, to faith in Christ and their growth in their relationship with Christ. And in and, and Romans 1, 16, the passage that we just read and, and verse 17, was, was one of those places for Martin Luther, the, the reformer that, that kind of led to even the fact that we're here this morning as a, as a, as a church to gather, together. It, it, this passage in Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, verse 17, it says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. And it says that the righteous would live by faith first to last. As it is written, the righteous live by faith. And so that, that was a, a key passage for, for Martin Luther. And, and other places, there, other individuals, Luther continues, he talks about just how, how important this passage were, or how important this book is. He says this letter, the letter to the Romans, is really the chief part of the New Testament, the purest gospel. And it is worthy not only of every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but to occupy himself or herself with it every day as daily bread for the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. John Calvin, who kind of a, a contemporary with, with Martin Luther, says this, that he, he says, when when anyone understands this letter, the letter to the Romans, he or she has a sure road open for him to understanding the whole of Scripture. Kind of the more modern, somebody uh, in 2002, the authors Doug, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart said this, that this letter is arguably the most influential, Christ, influential book in Christian history perhaps the most influential book in all of Western civilization. J.I. Packer, the pastor and theologian, says that all roads in the Bible lead to Romans. And all views afforded by the Bible are seen more clearly or most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans, listen to this, when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what will happen. Frederick Godet says this, that spiritual revival in the church will be connected with a deeper understanding of the book of Romans. And Tim Chalice, a, a modern a current author and a theologian, says this, that the, this book, that the Romans is a book of doctrine. It is a book for the church. It is a book of life. And it is a personal letter. 
And of all the things that, that are said about it, that, I would say that, and it carries so much weight. The book of Romans carries so much weight and has had so much influence on the lives of so many people. But what I would hope for us as we work through it over the next several weeks as we've traveled through the summer and the, I guess really 14 weeks that are, that are left as we wrap this up, that, that really those words from, from Tim Chalice would be what resonates in our heart, that this is a personal letter, that Paul wrote this letter to a church, to a group of individuals that are not unlike you and I this morning, that are a lot like, you, a lot like us, that, that it is a letter that was written, a personal letter that was written from Paul to these individuals, to this compassionate letter, this loving and honest and often painful letter that draws their attention to who God is, that all of who God is, and what he wants to do in our lives as we follow him faithfully, this call to faithfully follow him. And I want to encourage you as, you, as we hear it preached on Sundays, as we open up his word during the week, that you would treat it just like, and to join me in treating it as this personal letter that Paul writes to the church and that God uses in our lives to open us up to the beauty and the majesty of who he is and all that he has for us in the lives that he's given us. Not, not in some moment in the future, not, not the, that, that we, we would see this as a letter for us today, where we are right now. Not the journey that we're in the, in the moment that we're on in this journey, not some moment in the future, not some, some journey that we hope that we're on, but where we are today, that we would hear this word and receive it and be transformed by it in this moment today. And as, as we look at it and kind of move, diving into to Romans chapter 2, we're going to read these first five verses and then a couple of things, if you want to follow along on your worship guide that I want to point out from really these first five verses, there's no way we can go through all of these verses in these chapters. So we're just going to focus on parts of it when we gather on Sunday mornings. And I want to encourage you to read through it uh, as we exit, as you exit here and, and read throughout the week in our daily steps. So Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, this is what it says. He says, you, therefore, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, passes judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented hearts, you are storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgments will be revealed. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And God, just the whole, the whole Bible that tells us all of who you are. And we know that you've given us scripture from Genesis to Revelation to, to show to us, to tell us who you are, that everything that we need to know about who you are and all that you've desired for us to know is right there in Genesis to Revelation. But God, we see throughout history how this book, how the book of Romans, that this letter that Paul writes to the church of Romans that is inspired by your Holy Spirit has been used in so many lives to transform their lives, to transform history. 
And God, we pray this morning that we would approach this, these passages with the weight that they deserve. And God, as excited as I am to, to open up Romans and work through it over the next several weeks, God, I, I do approach it with, with a humility that, God, just the reminder of, of the weight that it carries. I can't forget about it. I can't get over it. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom to see your word, to open our eyes to the beauty that's here. Help us to see what you're calling us to in these passages. And may we be faithful to follow you no matter what the cost. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. So if you have your worship guide, first couple, there's four things I want to point out from these passages that we're that in these first five verses. And we'll bleed over a little bit to some, some of the others. But this really from Romans 2 and, and this, what it says here for us. The first thing is this, that God is righteous and God's judgments are right. That God is righteous and God's judgments are right. There, there's really some foundational things that happen in the first two chapters. And it really kind of, he, he really sums it up here in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2. And one of those main things that he says and what most, most theologians and scholars would say is really the kind of one of the main themes of the whole book of Romans is this, that God is righteous. That God is righteous. In Psalms 119, verses 37 through 38, he says this, that, that you are righteous, that David declares, the psalmist declares that you are righteous, Lord. That your laws are right, your statutes you've laid down are righteous. And they're fully trustworthy. The righteousness of God is one of the, one of the most prominent and important aspects of his character. One of the prom most prominent aspects and, or attributes that we see in, throughout Scripture. That throughout Scripture, as you, as you read and study Scripture, this, this is one of those things that you see over and over and over again. God's righteousness. And the meaning of his righteousness, what, what that means is, is, is that it's one of those main characteristics among all of the other attributes that describe who God is. And this, it, it, it finds itself under this list of, of his eternality, that he's eternal, that he's faithful, that he's good. Right, that he's holy and impartial, incomprehensible. He's infinite and just and long-suffering, that he's loving and merciful and omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient and all of those things. There's just all of these things that describe him. And one of those main ones that we find throughout Scripture is what Romans kind of centers on is that God is righteous. And the, what it refers to, what righteousness means is that, that is the definition of who God is, that he is right in all of his ways and all that he does is right and fair and just and that he's faithful to his promises. For God to be righteous, it means that everything that he does is right. That there's not a moment that God has made a mistake. And so we can look all throughout history, we can look out scripture, we can look through our lives and say that in all the things that God does, all the things that God, all of his ways, all of his words, all of his, all of the things that he's done, everything that is, everything that he does is right. All of his judgments are right. And he fulfills all the promises that he makes that everything that he does is right. That's what makes him righteous. Always right. He always acts in perfect goodness in relation to his creation. It's a part of who his character, it's essential to his character that God is righteous. And Christ acknowledges God's righteousness. In John chapter 17, he acknowledges that God is righteous. The angels in Revelation acknowledge that God is righteous. That scripture describes God's righteousness as unmatched, reaching to the heavens in the Psalms. Abundant, everlasting, and enduring forever. 
The psalmist says that as you read through the psalms, it says that God's righteousness is exhibited in his words and his commandments and all of his ways and in his judgments. And I think uh, kind of thinking about judgments, it's kind of where Romans points to, Romans 2 points to. When we look at Romans 2, he's right in all of his judgments and all the judgments that he lays. And what we understand about God and who he was and is and will always be is that he's righteous in the judgments that he makes on on the things that that he makes judgments on, right? They're always fair and just. But that, truthfully, if we're, if, if we're honest with ourselves, is not the best description of who we are. That God makes judgments and all of his judgments are right and pure and just, but that's not, that's not true of me all the time. Not all the time. Most of the time is what my wife would say, that your judgments are just so all, almost all the time great. But the truth is that they're not, right? I, I don't, I make judgments. And I, I recently I, I had one of these moments where I, I kind of quickly made a judgment and a, a judgment call about something. And, and it was with the group of friends, the guys that I was with. And, and very quickly over the next, I say, over the next like hour or so as the conversation continued, I realized that the judgment call that I made at the beginning of the conversation was not only just a little bit off, it was so far off I was embarrassed that I had said out loud what I said at the beginning of the story. And the reality is it's not just with other people, it's with myself that a lot of times the judgments that I make about myself are not even right. That I don't see clearly, truly all of who I am to make a judgment about myself. But God in his righteousness, everything that he does is always right. And so it kind of shifts gears and shifting to address something that is gonna, that's going to make us a little uncomfortable. Not only are our judgments not always right, but as we shift gears to look to that second thing, is that God's righteousness requires more than religious religion can supply. That a lot of times what happens is that, that I think that I can, I can do, I can, I can make a judgment call or, or I can look at this, these things and make this judgment call and I'm right. But, but a lot of times what I'm making in this judgment call is so far off, so far off based on my own, my own assessment of who I am and what I can do to make things right. That I miss the whole, I miss the whole picture. And a lot of times I'm basing that judgment, I'm basing my righteousness on the things that I can do. And it, it hurts to really understand that, that it, it takes this reality that of God's infinite righteousness and how human, humanity rejects God's righteousness. Chapter 2 brings this shift in this conversation that requires us to stop, stop looking out there and say that the problem is in the people out there, but look to, look to us and to point our fingers and our attention to our own hearts and say the problem is not out there, but it's in here. But as I look and say these, ju- I make judgments on out, the people out there, what Paul's doing and what, what was required of us in this passage is to stop looking out there and make judgments of people that we assess as doing the wrong things out there and point our fingers back to ourselves and say, it's us that's the problem. It's not them, it's me. Tim Keller says this, that Paul shows how a pagan and Gentile world has rejected God and has been given over to their godlessness and their wickedness that they they themselves have chosen. And the religious people that Paul's writing to react the same way that religious people react today. They would say, yes, of course God's wrath 
lies on the immoral pagan, the one who lives a life of debauchery. And then and now the religious people would agree that Paul's assessment of Romans 1, and sadly, they would be missing the whole point. You see, the opening verses of chapter 2, but Paul's taking it right to the religious, the self-righteous po- folks that, are in, that, that he's writing to, but also he's pointing his fingers right at us in this room. He's, pointing, he's pulling no punches. He's pointing directly to the ones that are reading this letter, shaking their heads, saying, with that smirk on their face, saying, I told you that they would get what's coming to them. But he's also talking to us. He's also talking to the ones of us here that think that we have it all together because we compare ourselves to the people that are around us rather than to the righteousness of God that is actually the standard that we judge ourselves against. It's interesting to me when when I look at the way that I compare myself to people and I think in general the way that we compare ourselves to people is that we we compare ourselves to the best of everyone when we want to complain about something that we don't have Right when I flip through social media and I and I, I I like things that really I'm despising when I like it, right? Because they have something that I don't have. I'm comparing myself to the best in those places. But what I do when I want to make myself feel good is I compare myself to the worst of people and try to prop myself up and say that that I'm I'm better than at least these people. I'm better than the, this this person that's a liar or a murderer or a thief. And I can compare myself to those people in those places and prop myself up and say that I'm righteous because I'm better than them. Right? The problem is that we don't realize that we have the same problems that, that those people that we're pointing ourselves, pointing out, they have as well. That it's not an outward problem, it's an inward problem. The problem is that God is not just looking at our hands and our self-righteous claims of all the things that we've done. What he's doing is he's looking at our hearts. And what he's, do, what he's doing in Romans is the same thing that Jesus did in, in the Gospels. And he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. That it doesn't matter how clean it is on the outside. The reality is that on the inside is death. The inside of that tomb, there's death. And you can clean it up on the outside all you want. But the inside is death. You can tell me all the ways that you're good, but when, 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 when you just clean it up on the outside and say you're good, but on the inside there's no life because you're actually not dealing with the actual problems, we're doing the same thing that these people that we're pointing at are doing. We're living a life of hypocrisy is what Paul says later on in the chapter. It's sobering or it should be sobering. The truth that we face as we, we really kind of recognize that the problem is not them, it's not something that's happening outside of me, that the problem is really in my heart. It's a sobering truth that I remember personally, and I've told you this, that, that, that if, if you've been around for a little while, I've, I've told you this, that, that on June 10th of 1997, when I trusted Christ for salvation, after I really realized that it wasn't, that I couldn't clean myself up enough. That all the things that I had done, the list of things that I had done, all, all of the things that I could bring before the Lord, it says that, that in Scripture it says they were filthy rags. And I felt that. I realized that there was nothing that I could do to make myself clean before God. That I felt this unrighteousness. That I pointed at other people and said that this is what they, their problem when I realized that it was my problem as well. It's a sobering reality that not only happens 
that happened that day, but it's a reality of what happens on a regular basis. And if you want to know the truth, if you grab this journal that's mine and you turned it to, to Friday's entry, you would see there was a moment when I was writing and I realized what I was writing and what I was saying about the, what the world and the way the world looks was really a, pointing my fingers at my own soul. And God opened my eyes again here, recognizing that it, I have the same issues. Mom, not, just in, not just in the moment of salvation, but over and over again, these sobering realities that, that, the real, that, 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 I'm, that I'm powerless to do anything to make God happy. I'm powerless to do anything to bring God's salvation and, and, and favor on my life. It's all by grace that he rescued me and he rescues any of us. You see, religion is powerless to provide what we really need. It's powerless to save us from our sins. It's powerless to rescue and to redeem us and to restore us. In fact, I would say that religion probably makes us worse. If I just rest on the things that I do, if I just rest on the things that I can do, or that, that I've done, if I, if I, if I hang my hat on, the, on my attendance and the fact that I read God's word and that, I, that I've gone on a mission trip and that I pray with my family before a meal, then, then I'm going to rest on religion and religion's going to make me worse because it's going to be this thin facade that says I'm good enough, but the reality is that my righteousness is built on something that I've done, not on what Christ has done. J.D. Greer, pastor, a pastor in North Carolina, says this, that religion is a thin veneer that hopelessly attempts to cover up a heart that is just as wicked and broken as the greatest of sinners. The fact that religion tries to convince us that we're better than those people because we've done these things or have not done those things, when in reality my heart is just as sick and just as broken and just as drawn towards sin. Again, religion is this, religion is following this set of rules is powerless to provide what God's righteousness requires. Because God's righteousness requires hearts that are changed and religion is always going to fail to bring the change within us that it often promises us. And faced with this reality, I think that Paul reminds us as we continue to look through it that this, this next thing that that there's a day of judgment that no one escapes. That there's a day of judgment that no one escapes. And if you go back to, to verse 5 again, it says, but, but because of your stubbornness of heart and unrepentant, stubbornness and unrepented hearts, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When the righteous judge, when the righteous judge, when his righteous judgments will be revealed. In verse 6, God will repay each according to what he has done. Some of the most terrifying words in Scripture to me are what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where he says this, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We drove out demons and, and, and we performed many miracles. And then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Not only these words, but, but as you search through the Gospels and read the stories of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, it's these words plus these interactions with these religious men in, in the Gospels that really terrifies me. 
It terrifies me because I, I see these, these religious men who, who had the Bibles open, who had the scrolls of the, of the Old Testament and who, who had memorized. If you're a Pharisee, you'd memorized all of the Psalms, all 150 of them, every word. You had memorized them. You would, you would, you would recite them all the time. Like they knew the scripture better than I know it, better than I probably will ever know it. And yet the one that the scripture testified about, they missed as they stood before him. And that's the indictment that Jesus says in John chapter 5. He says, you study scriptures diligently because you think in, in them you will have eternal life. But the very, scriptures, the very scriptures you study testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, said that if he was given 50 minutes or an hour to have a conversation about Christianity with a non-Christian, he said he would, he would spend the first 50 minutes of the conversation trying to convince them that they're not saved. And I would say, honestly, that if I had a conversation with a religious person, somebody that, that, that claims to be saved because of all of the things that they do, if they say, yes, because I'm a good person, that I, I'm going to spend that first, the first 50 minutes in the same thing that Francis Schaeffer is going to do. I'm going to spend the first 50 minutes of an hour conversation trying to make sure that you understand that salvation is not built on what you've done. And if you've been around me for a little while, you, you know that there, there, there's a, this is heavy on my heart because I believe that, that we live in a place, especially in this little Bible Belt affluent area of the world where we're even as my friend was driving in last week and he drove by the McDonald's that's near our house and he says, man, even the McDonald's in your neighborhood are saved because it had a little scripture or a little scene from the Easter on it that's been taken down this week. But I was like, yeah, I like the reality that so many of us have grown up in this place where we, this beautiful little town and, and life is good and, and we put our hope in all of the things that we've done. We put our hope in, and we live in this place where we're, we're in this kind of religious bubble and, and affluent bubble where life is really good and we've never really been pressed in our understanding of what the gospel really is and understanding of who Jesus is and what it takes to honestly be saved. And it's not about what we do. It's heavy on my heart because I believe in churches all across this area and honestly a good percentage in this room, there are people that have put their faith in something other than Jesus. And what I want, what I, I can't imagine is somebody that is here on a Sunday morning hearing these words from the Father on the day that they stand before him on a judgment that they cannot escape, that they, that they say, but I did these things, Jesus. And he says, depart from me because I didn't know you. I can't imagine be, being the pastor and, and see, watching that happen and saying, saying that I didn't tell you these things. That if you've put your hope in, in your religious experience, if you've put your hope and in, in you're trusting your salvation on your church attendance, on the fact that you raised your hand at some VBS at some time. Listen, raising your hand at VBS does not save you. Jesus saves you. And if your hope is in raising your hand, then your hope is in something that, that honestly is never going to rescue you. If your hope is in some tears that you shed or some emotion that you experienced at one time or another at some gathering of, of the body of believers, listen, your hope is in something that's false. Tears don't save us. Jesus saves us. 
Your baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Your parents, your grandparents' faith, it doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Your good deeds or your self-assessment of your own goodness, it doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Putting your faith in Jesus is the only hope that you have for salvation. I talked to people in the weeks before this sermon series, and they were so excited about going through Romans. And I was like, really? I don't think you're as excited as you really should. I think you're, you probably are excited about the wrong things. Because if Romans is going to do anything, it's going to put in our face over and over and over again the fact that we put our faith and we put our, our hope in something that's far less than what will actually rescue us. And what Romans does with great clarity over and over again is face us with our own mortality and the wickedness of our heart. And if you're excited about that, man, you got some weird things happening. But the joy that I do have is that there is zero chances that we're getting through the book of Romans without you hearing clearly that your hope is only ever going to be in Jesus. And my hope in that is that we are not prideful enough to walk away and, or we're not prideful enough to think that, that that we can still do it or that we're not selfish enough to think that, no, God, I'll, I'll take care of the places that I've fallen. Maybe, maybe that it's what happened to me is that I knew there was something wrong in my heart, but I was too afraid to step up because people knew me. They, they knew that I was a good dude, that I, that I led Bible studies and that I shared. I mean, I walked with students, I walked sixth graders, led sixth graders to Christ in a small group and as a senior in high school before I trusted Christ for salvation. And there was fear. What are people going to think? Listen, I don't care what people think today. And I hope that you can get over what people might think if you have to say, I've never put my faith in Jesus because I promise that on the day of judgment that no one escapes, it's not going to be what people think that really matters to you. If you bring before him all your good deeds rather than the blood of Christ, you will hope, you will wish that you would have abandoned what people thought in light of putting your faith in Jesus. Because what people think keeping you from trusting in Christ and putting your hope in him alone will end in tragedy for you. The last thing is this, that a right understanding of God's righteousness leads us to repentance. He says that, or do you show contempt, verse 4, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. In a world that, that says, if you first you don't succeed, you pull up your bootstraps, you buckle down and you try harder, Paul's exposing our hearts and trying to help us see that there's a different way, that there's a better way. Paul's saying that God's kindness and his patience and his grace and his mercy that's poured out on each of us to, is to open our eyes to the desperate condition of our heart and meant to turn our attention from the self-centered effort of religious practice to the selfless sacrifice of Christ on the cross. 
He's trying to pull us away from, stop, from, from holding on to our tired and worthless and pitiful efforts to make ourselves right and hold on rather to the perfect work of Jesus that is our only hope of salvation. And our response to this gracious and merciful kindness and patience is to repent to abandon this old way of life and say, God, I've tried my hardest to put my hope in all these other things, but it can only be found in you. And I, again, you know, you, you, if you've been around here for a little bit, you know that I, I, I'm, I'm never going to try to manipulate. I'm never going to try. I'm going to do my very best to not ever emotionally kind of stir things. And so here's, here's what I'm saying. If God's working in your heart, and, and I believe that there are individuals in this room that, that fall into this category where we have put our hope in something other than Jesus Christ. And I'm not trying to ask you to question your salvation other than if God is working in your heart to stir you as to whether or not you are actually putting your hope in him, then don't walk away from that and be like, ah, oh, that's the devil. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's Christ working in your heart to say, what have you actually put your hope in? And so deal with it. In his grace, he's calling you to repentance. So deal with it. Ask God, open my eyes to what's happening. Am I putting my hope in anything else? Is this one of those moments where really you're calling me to faith in you rather than faith in anything other than you? And so again, we're not, I'm not going to ask the band to come. We're not going to play three verses of just as I am. Listen, wherever you are, I want you to deal with what God wants you to deal with. And if you want to talk to somebody about what that looks like, I would love to have that conversation with you. I, it is my joy to walk with you through that conversation. But we're not going to emotionally manipulate you into that. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward after that. But in this, in this prayer, just if this is the beginning of that conversation, let's have that conversation. And then after the service is over, I'd love to talk to you about what it means to actually walk with Jesus and have a faith, have a relationship with him that's built on his sacrifice rather than your, the things that you may or may not have done. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for hard and painful moments when, when you throw your truth right at our feet, when you face us with the places that we put our hope in that are other than you. And this morning, God, I pray that as, as I am, I'm sure that just like me, 20 years ago, as you opened, God, by your grace, you opened my eyes to the fact that I was looking in every other category for salvation other than you. I'm sure that there are those in this room that have tried every other option and are banking on their goodness or their own religious experience. God, and I pray that by your grace, you would open them, open their eyes to your, to your salvation that comes through your son and through only your son. And God, would you do that in this room today? Draw us to faith in you. It's in Christ, strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.